Awesome. Thanks, Morgan. Yep, give it up for Morgan. Give it up for Morgan. <clears throat> great job. Great job. Great job. All right, guys. Welcome to Salt Company tonight. Uh, my name is Jared Cole. If we have not met, I'm on staff here with Salt Company as well. I'm also on staff with uh, Doxa, the community side. Um, if you're new here, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, we know there's some, there's some new faces out here in the crowd, man. If, if, if you're new, this is what we do almost every Thursday, okay? We come here, we get to gather, we get to sing songs to Jesus, we get to be in community, and we get to hear a little bit from the word uh, in the Bible. And so, man, if, if you're new, uh, we love you. You're welcome here, man, and we hope to see you again. Uh, please come again. Uh, I hope you find community here. So as Rudy said, uh, we're going to end our series tonight in the What is God Like series. And uh, the term that we're going to end on tonight, when we ask the question, what is God like, as we look at the text Morgan just read for us, Exodus 34, we're going to see that God is just. When we think about God being just, right, uh, an initial question that comes to mind is typically like, if we're talking about God being just in his character, do we have to address the fact of justice in general? <laughs> do we have to address the fact of injustice in general? And the answer is yes. <laughs> we do have to address those things. And I understand as you hear those words, it may be a hot button topic for you, right? Like, like maybe you're sitting in this room and you've never really heard about justice at all. Or maybe you have heard about justice and you grew up in a home where like, you know, your parents said, hey, justice is a political term that's talked about by politicians that's used to create division, right? And so you don't really talk about justice, but when you do, it's in a negative light. Or maybe you even grew up in a house where the term justice was used in a way that was antagonistic towards other people groups, right? Like there has been injustice inflicted upon our people. And so like we don't really associate there. We don't talk to those people. We don't go around those people, right? And so it's welled up in your heart when you hear the word justice. It can be like bitterness and things like vengeance. And so it's hard to talk about justice at times, especially when we have so many differences in opinion on how to even speak about it. But as you read the scripture, you really can't get around it. Can you? There is injustice and a cry for justice almost everywhere. And we're left with no other thing to believe other than that it is important to God. See, a lot of us may be torn about how we feel about justice and God's just nature. But tonight I hope to give us a biblical understanding so that we can see this. That a good understanding of God's justice leads to a better understanding of our Christian identity. This is my main point for our note takers in here. And as I talk about this main point, I wanna hinge it on two sub points. The first one's gonna be God cares about injustice. And the second one is that God is just to forgive. We're gonna hang out mostly in verse seven of the text that Morgan just read for us, but I wanna read both verses again one more time Here's what it says in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. The Lord passes before him and proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
Verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so to my first point tonight, God cares about injustice. When we say that God cares about injustice, what I mean is that God doesn't look at injustice and he doesn't look at the evil in the world and just shrug his shoulders. What I mean is that God is actually angry at it, right? One of the hardest things to come to grips with about God is that he punishes evil. But I think we have to understand what's at the root of evil and injustice to understand God's feelings towards it. See, injustice at its root is an attack on the image of God, the Imago Dei. See, in the beginning, God created everything, and last, he created mankind. He literally saved the best for last. And when he created us, and even as we sinned and we turned and we walked away from him, he was never like, yo, these people over here, they're special. They're the ones who remain from me, and these people over here, like, they're not. Every single person ever created was made in the image of God. And God has a way for his image bearers to be treated. And how is that? It's with justice. Justice as a definition is treating people in a way that accords with their status as image bearers, especially the vulnerable, the poor, the weak, the marginalized, with the goal of flourishing according to God's design. So that means injustice would be anything that interferes with this plan and God being just has to punish it. See, a holy God that simply winks at evil is not a God that we should worship. God not clearing the guilty means that because of his just nature, he has to judge sin. This is one of the main characteristics of God. He is God the creator. He has supreme authority overall, and he is also final judge. But God doesn't only punish the sins of the guilty, but he also punishes sin for generations. Look at the back half of verse 7. He's talking about his, his character and him being just and saying that with iniquity, he's visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And as we think about this, right, this is kind of hard for us to understand, isn't it? You know, from face value, it looks like we're being told that God carries punishment from parents to their children. Whoa. You should be asking the question, like, God, are you saying that I will be responsible for the sins of my parents? The answer is no. How do we know? It's because Moses will later pin something that states the complete opposite, that in Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children be put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Have you ever heard the phrase, don't worry about yesterday's or tomorrow's troubles, for today has enough trouble of its own? Well, you should, because a really smart rabbi from the Middle East like said something similar. 
But the same principle applies to our sin. You don't have to worry about suffering from the sin of your parents because you have enough sin of your own to be worried about. So if he's not saying that we suffer from the sins of our parents, then what is he saying? In preparation for this message, I was reading this book that was written by a pastor from way out west. And in it, he was talking about what this actually means. If he's not saying that we suffer from the sins of our parents, we have to ask, what is he actually saying? And he pointed out three different lenses that we can look at this through. And the first one is this. There's a reality that parents' sin has consequences for the children's future. If you guys have been coming around Doxa on Sundays, we've been going through the book of Daniel. And if you've been keeping up in the book of Daniel, right, if you've, if you've never read it before, I suggest you read it. It gets a little sticky in the back half of the book, man, but if, but if you're a nerd like me and you like to do a little research and you like a little bit of history, like, I think you can get through it. But in this book, it begins by zooming in on this young man named Daniel, and they catch him as he's just getting put into exile in Babylon. You get a picture of him and his three friends, right? Young boys. And if you read the book, the Babylonians are this wild people. But God had been warning the people of Israel, of whom Daniel was a part of, to repent and turn away from their sin. But they never repented and turned away from their sin. They, they refused. God literally sent prophet after prophet to warn the people to turn away from their injustice, from their idol worship, and from their worship of the other gods of the surrounding nations. And they didn't listen. And so as a result, God disciplined his people. And at the time of exile, Daniel was about 14 years old. He was just a boy. And so in the grand scheme of things, like he had little time, if any, to contribute to the sins of Israel. And yet here he is suffering the consequences of the generations before him. <laughs> Daniel would be in exile for 70 years. That's literally like receiving a life sentence in prison for something that you didn't even commit. Like this was Daniel's life. Reaping the consequences of the sins of the generations before him. There is a reality to that in the text. The actions of the generations before have consequences for the generations after. That's one way to look at it. But there's another way to look at it. And it's this, that sin just runs through the family. In other words, it's, it's in your DNA. Have you realized that there's just some things that your parents do, quirks, little ticks, right, that you just can't really get away from? <laughs> Maybe you haven't quite had this experience yet, but as you get older, there'll be so many things that you do in your life that you swore that you would never do that your parents do that actually just show up in your life. Little things, right, like how obsessive you are about cleanliness, right? How particular you are about your bed sheets, right? The random tunes that you hum as you walk around your apartment, you walk around your house, you're skipping around on campus, right? Like, like, like those little things. 
that your parents did that you never thought you'd do. Like those things are really evident in your life. And as you grow older, I have something sad to say. It just keeps getting worse. It's just in your DNA. Now, I found this out the hard way. I hail from Kansas City originally, but spent the last several years of my life in Iowa. My wife's from there. And my dad, he lives in Philadelphia. And one day he comes to visit us. He's hanging out, right? And we got little kids. And this is one of the first times he's able to see my, my kids. I have three girls and one little boy, right? And they know him as Pawpaw but haven't really spent much time around him, right? So they're getting to know him, they're prodding and poking at him, they're hanging out with him, just testing him a little bit, getting to know who he is. And one day we're just sitting around, my dad's visiting, and my girls come up to both of us and he's like, she, or they're like, dad, you look a little bit like Papa, <laughs> right? Dad, you make the same sounds that Papa makes when he gets up from the chair. <laughs> like dad, I heard Pawpaw snoring last night, and you kind of sound like Pawpaw whenever, whenever you snore. See, these are funny illustrations. But this reality goes both ways, doesn't it? Maybe it's not the weird twitch, but it's alcoholism that gets passed down. Maybe it's not the funny noise you make, but it's this insatiable desire to manipulate. Or it's not your athleticism, but your seeming inability to hold a conversation without telling a lie. You see, these things can be passed down too. Some of the things that are passed down are harmless, but some of the things that are passed down are harmful. Can I make a hard turn really quick? You see, we live in a nation that has a history of harmful practices of sexism, of racism, of segregation and hatred, practices that were passed down from generation to generation. And there's still things that we're wrestling with today. I have four kids two of which are in elementary school right now, a second grader and a kindergartner. They go to this school right here in Madison called Midvale Elementary. There's a little bit of history behind Midvale Elementary. About 30 years ago, Midvale and this other elementary school named Lincoln, they were two separate elementary schools. But what had happened was the city of Madison did this thing called redlining. I don't have a lot of time to go into redlining, but redlining is this reality where cities would separate sections and parts of the city for a place where desirable people could live in a particular place and undesirables could only live in a, another place. And so the undesirables would live towards Lincoln, and the desirables would live towards Midvale. This was the history of Madison. And about 30 years ago, they made this, this law that was gonna pair these schools up. And so now Mid Midvale, the school that my daughters go to, it only goes to second grade. <laughs> and Lincoln carries them from third grade to fifth grade. And I think this is great. <laughs> you see, the world saw a problem and they tried to do something about the injustice in the city. 
the world would do its best to fight the justice problem. But it doesn't have the ability or foundation to do it rightly. Am I grateful for it? Yes, it's a good effort. But it's incomplete because at the center of it is a concern of man and not the concerns of God. Have you ever thought about how you fit in the greater picture of what God is doing in America? Have you ever thought about how you fit in the greater picture of what God is doing in your own family? See, one of the things I love about your generation is that you're not afraid to ask the tough questions. You're not settling for the cookie cutter answers that former generations have settled for. You're actually pressing in. You're pressing past that, why? Because you're a generation that wants to make a difference. And I'm grateful for that. Research polls have actually showed that your generation, as you think about your future and you think about the things that you wanna do, they show that you're less concerned about your what, what you're gonna do, but you're more concerned about your why, why you're going to do it. See, your generation isn't obsessed with the life that's comfortable. Your desire is to live a life that has meaning. How commendable. But don't get me wrong, right? Your generation isn't perfect. <laughs> But this is honor time. And as we press into the future, as we press into the America that we're coming to, an America that we've never been in before, a more dense America, a more diverse America, a more automated America, an easier to sin in America, we need a generation like yours with the gospel on your lips to lead us and take us there. Okay, we can all hug and cry later, okay, but we gotta keep going in the text. You see, the last way to look at this is that God will punish sin in every generation. I think this is likely the best lens to view this passage through. You see, when God is saying that he won't let the guilty go unpunished and he will visit the iniquity of the father's children and their children and their children, it means that God is consistent with his judgment against sin. And so just like he judged your grandpa Earl's sin, he judged your daddy's sin. And just like he judged your daddy's sin, he will judge your sin. This is what the text is trying to show us. Three things to note that one, sin does have consequences. No, you're not paying for the sins of your foreparents, neither is anybody else. But we will all give an account of our own. And I know that can sound unnerving, maybe a little scary, but at the core, we know that we need a God who judges sin, don't we? And we need a God who judges injustice. And maybe you hear this and you say, well, I can't quite get there with God. <laughs> the God I know is righteous and he's compassionate, and he's loving, he's merciful. Yes, God is those things, but not at the cost of him being just. See, this is the beauty of Exodus 34. God is just, but he's also merciful and compassionate. He's just, but also slow to anger. He's just, but also faithful. He's just, but also forgiving, just, and also abounding in steadfast love. 
God's justice and God's righteousness are not two separate things. And we see this in the Psalms. Psalms 89, you'll see this on the screen, tells us this, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before him. Psalm 33 says he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 11, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Psalm 37, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. See, God's justice is not separate from his righteousness. Tony Evans has a quote. Tony Evans is a pastor in the South down in Dallas, Texas. That says that God's justice is God's righteousness applied. Salt Company, God's justice is ultimately good. So not only is God just to judge sin, but he's also just to forgive. And I know you hear this. <laughs> he judges sin, but he's just to forgive. And you're saying, yo, isn't there a contradiction that lies in there somewhere? How can the God of universe be just to judge sin and just to forgive? How does that work? You see, God is just and he is righteous. But here's the tick. His character bends towards mercy. See, God's overwhelming stance on humanity, on our relationships with one another, on our relationship with him, it all bends towards mercy. Look at this in the text. Verse 7, he's talking about his character, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We gotta do some work here. See, in the Hebrew text, there's actually a word that's missing in this passage. It's the word generation. You see it in one spot, but don't see it in another. It doesn't actually appear in the original language as this is written in the text, but it appears in our English language, right, to kind of help us with this Hebrew principle. But as it's added there, right, after the third and fourth generation, it could also be added at the beginning where it says, God is keeping steadfast love for the thousands. It could say thousands of generations. It could read steadfast love for thousands into the third and fourth, or it could read steadfast love for thousands of generations into the third and fourth generations. Both are true. But the thing I want to point out to us is the length. The fact that it illustrates God's love being established for thousands and his judgment only to the third and fourth communicates this core truth about God. If you can imagine the scale, not the kind you go in your bathroom and step on, <laughs> the one I ain't stepping on, but like the one, you, the one you think of when you think of a courtroom, a scale that weighs in the balance. You have mercy on one side and you have justice on the other. 
See, although God is just and deals out justice, the truth about this scale is that it's not even. It's not even and it's frankly not even close. It is overwhelmingly and graciously tilted towards mercy. This is what's true about God's character. Yes, he is just, he's also merciful. His throne is justice and righteousness. But when it comes down to it, our loving father, the creator of the universe, the one who carries out justice, the one who is just by character, he's a merciful God. He is a merciful God. But how could this be? See, the contradiction we still have to deal with, that just God could never just let injustice and sin go. So what does he do? I'm glad you asked. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. <laughs> right? If there's a stage insert stage right it's Jesus he literally comes on the scene right Jesus our savior who lived the perfect life who was someone who was counted as equal with God who had royalty in his grasp he condescended he put on human flesh he became one like us and came to this earth to live the life that we should have lived and not only did he live that life, but he died the death that we should have died for the sake of our sin. See, God doesn't overlook our sins and he doesn't sweep them under the rug and he doesn't just forget about them. You know what he does to them? He binds them to his son. How could a just God be so merciful? God satisfied his just wrath on his perfect son so that we might not experience the just judgment of God. See, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's how mercy works. What Exodus 34 is telling us about the narrative of God is that in his rich mercy, in his steadfast love, in his slowness to anger, in his faithful and forgiving nature, he is just to consistently extend mercy to a world full of sinners who consistently reject him. And Jesus provides a way for us not to be counted among those who are rejected how? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, when it comes to mercy, you don't have to twist God's arm to get him to be merciful. That's his lean. That's his bent. Yes, just and righteous, but completely merciful. You don't have to twist his arm to be that way. But you do have to come to him in confession 
and repentance. The point of God's justice is not to condemn, but it's to redeem. God is just because he has to do what only a righteous God can and should do, but his plan is for his justice not to condemn, but to lead to a redeemed and reconciled people. See, when we have a good understanding of God's justice, we have a better understanding of who we are in Christ, which is a redeemed people who also do justice, who love mercy, and who walk in humility. So as I conclude, I want to give us space some reflection and meditation. Would you close your eyes where you are? See, maybe this is the time where you need to realize and remember how much your sin is an injustice against God. And maybe you need to have a moment of confession and repentance. Maybe you need to have a moment of confession and repentance. Maybe even for the first time. Now I believe if you're in this room, if you're recognizing the depth of your sin, for the first time tonight, and you sense the Spirit working it in you to believe. If you hear this message and you're broken by the sin and injustice in the world and you recognize that there's also sin and injustice in you and you feel that conviction from the Spirit, Would you just come find me after this? Or maybe find Rudy or Katie or Molly or Nicole. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to have a conversation. We would love to help you see that in the scales of balance, that God's mercy is overwhelmingly tipping towards you. Or maybe this is the first time you've recognized that social injustice is still a part of our world and you're correct right now. You feel the pain and you don't know what to do, but feel like God is calling you to take steps. You can also come find us. We'd love to chat about that. I'm going to give you a moment with God. Would you lift your thoughts to him? Would you lift your prayers to him? Would you lift your concerns to him? Whatever you're coming in here with right now, would you lay it at his feet? Would you trust and know and believe that he came for you? God sent him. He saw a people racked in sin, racked in injustice. He saw me. He saw you running far away from him. He says, son, go get him. Would you go get my people? Would you go get him? Would you bring him back to me? Y'all, this is the invitation that's extended to you. This is the invitation. You don't have to hide. You don't have to run. You don't have to work. You don't have to clean. God sees you. God loves you. God wants you. Jesus died for you. Are, you can be redeemed. You can be purchased. He's done it for you. He's waiting. Would you lift your prayer to God?
Heavenly Father. We're grateful for you. Lord, we're grateful for your righteousness and we're grateful for your justice. Your mercy and your compassion, your faithfulness, your forgiveness. Lord, we need it all. Lord, I confess I can still even get uneasy as I think about your justice. <laughs> I get uneasy because I still sin. And the truth is you are against all injustice and sin. And if you are against all sin, then that means that you are against my sin. Wow. What a sober reality. Lord, I plead for those who don't know you to know you so that they can receive the mercy that they so desperately need and that you are so desperately willing to give. God, thank you for your mercy. Would you save tonight? Would you do the work that only you can do? Lord, we trust in you to do it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.